Hey, I'm Noam Weissman, and you're listening to Unpacking Israeli History, the podcast that takes a deep dive into some of the most intense, historically fascinating, and confusing events in Israeli history. If you're looking to learn about Israeli history, you've come to the right place. Yalla, let's do this. We, the people of Israel, are prepared and anxious to meet the representatives of our neighbors without any preconditions. There are people in Israel and elsewhere say it's impossible to make peace between the Arabs and Israel or the Jewish people. I think they are wrong. Israel is an incredibly young country with enough history to make you dizzy. Everyone has their own opinions, right? Israel seems to get tons of attention in the media. But something I think about often is, do we really know the stories, the facts behind them, and different perspectives on them? In this podcast, we're going to go into the center of the storm and place ourselves into some of the most complicated moments surrounding Israeli history, looking at them from different angles. All of that in just about 20 minutes. In these short episodes, we will take on some really tough questions. We'll explore topics that predate the modern state of Israel, like the Dreyfus Affair, the Uganda Plan, and the revival of the Hebrew language. We'll then dive into some of the key moments post-1948, like the Altalena Affair, the First Intifada, the Rabin assassination, and the evacuation of Gush Katif. Here's the point. By the end of this season, my hope is that all of us will have grown in our knowledge around Israel, and our interest in Israel will be ignited. But there's really something else that is at the core of this podcast. I want to make sure that we can all allow a deep understanding of Israel's history and controversies and debates surrounding Israeli history to impact and animate how we see the present. How we interpret events from the past helps us understand the present. And if we can all see the complexity, the nuances, the differences of opinion, Perhaps, perhaps, we can all live a more empathic present. I can't wait to get started. There were many events in Jewish and Israeli history that I heard about over and over again. Some were moments that were defining for the Jewish people, like the destruction of the Second Temple or the Spanish Inquisition. And in modern times, I think every single Hebrew teacher I ever had sang Chana Senesh's Eli, Eli. And in every single camp, the counselor would remind us of the heroism of Yoni Netanyahu during the raid of Entebbe. It was on July 4th, 1976, by the way. These were moments and stories that I grew up on. But there was one story that I heard over and over again that if I'm honest with myself, I never actually understood. I always pretended like I got it, but I didn't really get it. This was the Dreyfus Affair. Apparently, this event marked the start of Zionism. But how? And why in the world was the Dreyfus Affair so important? The question we're thinking about today is, how is it possible that an espionage trial in France in the mid-1890s put events in motion that led to the rebirth of the Jewish state after almost 2,000 years? In today's episode, I want to demystify this story and answer all these questions. In September 1894, 
a maid at the German embassy in Paris, was looking through the trash when she discovered a note addressed to the German military attaché. It referred to several top-secret documents about new French artillery. An ordinary maid likely wouldn't have cared, but this was no ordinary maid. This maid was a spy for France's military intelligence, and this was no ordinary note. This note, which came to be known as the Bordereau, I have no idea how to pronounce that, which is French for the memo, which is something I definitely know how to pronounce, was then sent to the French Minister of War, General Mercier. Without giving it much thought, the general decided the culprit must be an artillery officer. When the list of artillery officers hit his desk, General Mercier had his man. Most officers in the French army at the time were Catholic aristocracy, but one name on the list was not Catholic. It was Alfred Dreyfus, a Jewish officer. Dreyfus had risen up through the Republic's military and social standing, somehow even though he was a Jew. Officer roles at that time were expected to be filled by young aristocrats, not Jewish commoners. To Mercier, Dreyfus was obviously the officer who wrote the treacherous memo. The only question to answer was, how was he guilty? To try and prove Dreyfus's guilt, Mercier had a criminologist examine the memo who determined that the handwriting was not Dreyfus's. But after some encouragement by the authorities, he concluded that the reason it did not exactly match Dreyfus's handwriting was, and, and get ready for this one, Dreyfus forged his own handwriting to make it seem as if someone was framing him. So the fact that the handwriting did not look like Dreyfus's proved that it was Dreyfus. And that was it. That was the case that they built. This and some vilifying letters that his accusers wrote themselves. On October 15th, with this quote-unquote evidence, Dreyfus was secretly arrested. He was interrogated for two weeks. During those two weeks, Dreyfus adamantly maintained his innocence. A Parisian paper found out about the secret arrest and broke the story. But instead of decrying the event as an abuse of power, they celebrated his incarceration and pronounced Dreyfus's obvious guilt on account of his being, ready for this, quote, an officer while Jewish. This is where the story moves from just another story of anti-Semitism to a story of anti-Semitism that would shape world history. Enter Theodor Herzl. Herzl was born in Hungary and was a totally assimilated Jewish playwright and journalist. He spoke no Hebrew or Yiddish, and as far as I know, didn't really have a Jewish education. As a young playwright, and because playwrights need to eat, he was working in Paris as a foreign correspondent for a Viennese newspaper. As a secular, non-observant Jew, he had been struggling with what the Europeans were calling the, quote, Jewish question, meaning what is to be done with the Jews of Europe? They didn't fit in. They were not welcome. How could they be changed in some way to become acceptable? This is odd because in 1867, the Jews in the Austro-Hungary Empire gained full legal equality, and in 1871, Germany followed suit, while in France, the Jews already had full equality for nearly a century. Ironically, 
Jew hatred, which received its official and political name anti-Semitism in 1879 by Wilhelm Marr, became ubiquitous. So much so that in 1895, the mayor of Vienna, Karl Luger, was elected basically on a fully anti-Semitic platform. Herzl soon realized that the rampant anti-Semitism of the time was not only about religion. Anti-Semitism was about Jews as a people. He was strongly impacted by statements he heard from quote-unquote professional anti-Semites like German philosopher Karl During and Hungarian politician Gyozo Estosi. During wrote that the Jewish problem was, this is also a quote, a problem of race, morals, and culture. Whereas Estosi, whose political party was actually called the National Anti-Semitic Party, believed that there was only one solution. They wanted the Jews out. And they even beat Herzl to his own idea with the anti-Semitic slogan, Jew, go to Palestine. Kind of ironic now. During this time, Herzl was in France covering the Dreyfus trial, and Herzl was shocked at what he saw and heard. For the two months leading up to the Dreyfus trial, Herzl witnessed the French right-wing press working overtime. It was a constant drumbeat of anti-Semitic and obscene news coverage, insulting, vilifying, and straight-out fabricating stories about Alfred Dreyfus. So anti-Semitism was in the air, and for Herzl, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. In the winter of 1894, behind closed doors, the military espionage trial began. The general staff presented its convoluted theory that Dreyfus faked his own handwriting. They really had no case at all. Yet three days later, the seven military judges unanimously convicted Alfred Dreyfus of passing secrets to a foreign power. The sentence was life in exile on Devil's Island, a French penal colony off the coast of French Guyana, which is in South America, by the way, and a revocation of his army rank and title and public degradation. On January 5th, 1895, as Herzl watched in the press corps, Dreyfus was marched out onto the parade grounds of Paris's military school and a public disgrace was made of him. A military guard took Dreyfus's sword and broke it. He tore the badges off Dreyfus's uniform, tore off his stripes, his cuffs, his sleeves, his buttons, and threw them in the dirt. Dreyfus was then marched around the grounds in front of 5,000 soldiers and was brought before the press, where Herzl was standing and there he declared his innocence. As Herzl later reported, the crowd then started chanting, death to the Jew or death to the Jews. The media coverage, the verdict of the trial, the public degradation, and the general anti-Semitic outburst were a tipping point for Herzl. Apparently, it gave Herzl a chilling realization. Witnessing the crowd outside the trial shouting, death to the Jew or death to the Jews, it really doesn't matter what it was, either death to the Jew or death to the Jews, convinced him once and for all that if a Jew like Dreyfus could climb the social ladder so well and go so far in society as Dreyfus and still be a victim of such anti-Semitism, then assimilation, integration, whatever word you want to use, would never solve the Jewish problem. From this moment, Herzl became convinced that the Jews needed to get out of Europe and find their own home. They needed agency. They needed to control their own destiny. That idea, that vision, would eventually be called Zionism. 
To understand Herzl's thinking, we need to talk for a moment about the promise of the French Revolution. Before the Revolution, the Jews of Europe lived as second-class citizens, if you could even call it that. They lived at the whim of monarchs who sometimes protected the Jews and who at other times empowered their population's worst anti-Semitic impulses. Again and again, entire Jewish communities were eradicated, either through expulsion or by mass murder. The Jews of Europe lived with little to no legal protections. As France formed a new civilization, its young, unstable government wrote the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen. Among these rights, that Jews, for the first time in Europe's history, would be equal citizens under the law. It was a massive change in European politics and thinking. Over the next hundred years, all of Western Europe, as well as the Ottoman Empire, emancipated its Jewish populations and declared them citizens in equal standing, with full legal protections. It was a revolutionary idea, and a welcome one to the Jewish community. Well, at least in theory. Given what Herzl had just witnessed in the months before Dreyfus's trial, he realized something was wrong. Emancipation sounded good, but if emancipation, enlightenment, liberalism, and education could lead to this, then well for the Jewish people, emancipation was a failed project in France. In fact, Herzl observed, emancipation in Europe was actually having a reverse effect. Herzl realized that if emancipation failed to protect an assimilated and loyal Jewish officer in France, it was going to fail throughout Europe. The Jews needed to get out as soon as possible. Meanwhile, while Dreyfus languished across the ocean on Devil's Island, the head of intelligence retired, and a new head of intelligence took his place. In March of 1896, this new head of intelligence decided to take a look at the Dreyfus file. He saw the infamous Bordereau, or memo. He saw the character assassinations, as well as an ignored telegram between the German military attaché and a French officer named Ferdinand Esterhazy. No one had bothered to follow up on this lead. That or the evidence had been suppressed. The new head of intelligence compared Esterhazy's handwriting to the handwriting on the infamous memo. He brought this information to General Mercier's staff and was told that the case was closed and over. So drop it. And then he was transferred to Tunisia. From Tunisia, information about Esterhazy mysteriously made its way to the press, including a copy of the memo, which was published for all to see. Esterhazy's handwriting was then recognized by a banker to whom Esterhazy owed a substantial debt. Esterhazy's ex-mistress then published letters he had written in which he declared his hatred of France and of its military, so some pretty damning evidence. The military was forced to take Esterhazy to court, but somehow managed to find him innocent. The great French novelist Emile Zola was so disgusted by the verdict, he wrote a tell-all that took up the entire front page of a Paris newspaper. He titled it J'accuse, or in English, I accuse. In it, he named names, described the sordid details, and also firmly began the tradition of journalism speak truth to power. That's the purpose of journalism. The article went off like a bomb. It humiliated France internationally and tore the country into two camps. On one end were the Dreyfusards, 
who loudly presented their facts and documentation. And on the other were the anti-Dreyfusards who used anti-Semitic conspiracy theories to justify their belief that Dreyfus was a German spy. The case from then on would simply be known as the Dreyfus Affair. Riots broke out in the streets. People shot each other in duels. Esterhazy escaped England for his safety. And then Emile Zola was sued by the military for libel, found guilty, sentenced to prison, and then also he escaped to England for safety. As collusion between the government and the military became more apparent, ministers stepped down. Members of parliament were shouting about civil war. And in February of 1899, there was a failed coup attempt. With too much evidence to keep the case at bay, Dreyfus was brought back to France in June of 1899 to be retried. He had lost his teeth and he even lost his capacity for speech. It's really sad. He had been the sole prisoner on Devil's Island and hadn't had a conversation in years. The new espionage trial was conducted again by a secret military court and again, they found him guilty. But in light of what the world now knew, the president of France offered Dreyfus a full pardon. So nice. Dreyfus accepted, even though it meant he would be conceding to his supposed guilt. In 1906, the French Supreme Court cleared Dreyfus, and at last the nightmare was truly over. Dreyfus was fully reinstated to the army, promoted to artillery major, and was awarded the Legion of Honor. That's right. Here's a common misconception that Dreyfus never was cleared and never returned to the army. In reality, Dreyfus remained a loyal Frenchman, and at the outbreak of World War I in 1914, he proudly served, promoted again to lieutenant colonel. He passed away on July 12, 1935, and was buried two days later on Bastille Day. Herzl did not live to see Dreyfus reinstated. Herzl passed away at the young age of 44 in 1904. Seven years earlier, in 1897, he convened the first Zionist Congress. Those few years of tireless work initiated the meetings of the Zionist Congress, led to a second Aliyah, the second mass migration to Israel, that lasted from 1904 until the start of World War I in 1914, led to the Balfour Declaration, the San Remo Conference, the Partition Plan, and finally, 50 years after Herzl predicted it in his own diary, the establishment of the modern state of Israel. Okay, but why does this story still matter now? Here's how I think about it. It's clear that the formation of the state of Israel is not the result of the Dreyfus Affair. That argument would be akin to saying World War I began as a direct result of the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria and his pregnant wife, Sophie. Clearly, things are more complicated than that. World War I began for multiple reasons, including growing militarism, imperialism, nationalism, and strategic alliances at the time in Europe, and lots of other things I should know about because I'm a history major, but totally forgot about since. For 2,000 years, there was a religious and national desire for a Jewish return to the land of Israel. And at the time of the Dreyfus Affair, there had already been movements of young Jews returning to what was then Ottoman-controlled Palestine to work the land in hopes of a future state. However, Herzl absolutely deserves a huge amount of credit, as his initiative to found political Zionism and get the ball rolling in a real tangible way helped lead to the founding of the state. And the Dreyfus Affair 
was a part of Herzl's story. The Dreyfus Affair cuts to the heart of questions surrounding Jewish identity even today. Today around the world, anti-Semites accuse Jews of dual loyalty, of not being faithful citizens in the various countries in which they live. Much like how at the time of the Dreyfus Affair, even in enlightened France, Jews were treated as outsiders and scapegoats. It is a stark reminder to fight the virus of anti-Semitism at its very core in every country in which it rears its ugly head. But it's also a reminder of what a different world we live in today, a world with a Jewish national home that has its doors open to all Jews around the world. If you're like me and you never really got it when it came to the Dreyfus Affair, hopefully now you do. To sum it up concisely, here are your five fast facts. Number one, Alfred Dreyfus, a Jewish-French military officer, was wrongfully accused and convicted of being a German spy, with no proof. Number two, Dreyfus spent five years as a prisoner on Devil's Island, a remote island off the coast of South America, where he didn't have a conversation for four years. Number three, when Herzl heard crowds chant death to the Jew or death to the Jews after Dreyfus was found guilty, it pushed him to work for a Jewish state to solve the problem of anti-Semitism. Number four, after finally being exonerated in 1906, Dreyfus returned to the French military where he even served during World War I. And number five, the Dreyfus Affair shook France and Europe to its core as it happened 100 years after the French Revolution in which all citizens, regardless of background, were to be given liberty, equality, and fraternity. Those are the facts. But here is one enduring lesson as I see it. If you paid attention to the story, you'll notice that Alfred Dreyfus is not really a subject in the story. He was more like an object. He plays no active role. And although it is a story about him, it's not really about him. And that's exactly the point. The Dreyfus Affair is a wild, intense, and historically fascinating event. And it also really wasn't. On the one hand, we remember the story because it stands out as a unique moment in modern Western history. On the other hand, we remember this story precisely because it is the story of the Jewish people before the state of Israel came into existence. For too many centuries, Jewish people were Dreyfuses, living as objects without agency. With the advent of Zionism and the creation of the state of Israel, the Jewish people returned to the stage as subjects who would control their own destiny. With that, thanks for listening to an episode of Unpacking Israeli History. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating if you enjoyed listening. You can email me with any questions you might have. I'd love to hear from you at noam at unpacked.media. Stay tuned for our next episode, where we'll be discussing how Herzl almost made Uganda the Jewish homeland instead of Israel. This podcast is brought to you by Open Door Media. I'm your host, Noam Weissman. Our producer is Rachel Kastner. Research and writing by Avi Posen, Akiva Potok, and Yitz Brilliant. Edited by Robert Perra. Unpacking Israeli History is generously sponsored by Larry and Andre Gill.